Let's seek the Lord's aid. Father, this is a challenging passage for us to understand, to apply to our lives. And I pray that you would move within this congregation to <clears throat> take in the Word. By the Spirit of God, I pray that you'd bring out of this challenging passage what we need to hear as a congregation today. Our concerns are so very different than those of the Corinthian church, but we know that by your Spirit you have left this Word for us, and I pray that we would rightly grow under it and be sanctified by it. And for those who know not Christ, I pray that this passage would not confuse the large issue that they need to come to know Jesus crucified and risen. And I pray for all of us that, that we would be thinking of that work of grace and how it changes our lives. Move here among us and sanctify your people, I pray, through Jesus. Amen. One of the most damning errors that people ever commit is to try to earn God's favor by what they do. By doing good deeds. To such people we witness the liberating truth that fellowship with God is based on what is finished. We witness the good news of Jesus' eternally completed mission of redemption. His death, His resurrection, His conquest of Satan and sin and death is our only and fully sufficient hope for salvation. It's not what you do. It's not who you make yourself. It is what Christ did. His work forever finished in behalf of all who trust Him for salvation from the just penalty of our sin. Now, much of the Apostles' burden in the book of 1 Corinthians is to inspire the church to calibrate their lives to that very message, that finished work of Christ. He exhorts them and us to move past the milk of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to the meat, so to speak, of how that works into our daily lives. How it changes and transforms every nook and cranny of the life that God has given us. In chapter 7, Paul focuses on the Gospel's transformative work in the realm of human sexuality and marriage. And last week, we mentioned there, maybe we could summarize his counsel to the church as relax. Rest in place. Trusting the good news of Jesus crucified and risen does not spawn a life of worry and fretting about your circumstances. As if I could just make some significant change, all would fall into place. Give it a rest. Be at peace where you are, is his counsel. With greater clarity at the end of chapter 7, he stresses that true gospel living hinges on two realities. The first is the passing nature of this world. We sung of it here this morning. The passing nature of this world. And secondly, the coming consummation of our redemption that Jesus has purchased. And we've sung of that as well. To know this world will be left behind. It is passing away. But there is coming at us the glory of Christ and eternity with Him. If we live in light of those two realities, in the deepest sense of the word, we will relax. We will trust. 
We will be at peace in every circumstance of life on some level. This is what the Corinthians were struggling to do. People flit about the earth anxiously trying to change their circumstances for better at every turn, never at rest with what they have, never at rest with their status in life, never at rest with life, period. And the Corinthians were struggling along those same lines because they were not applying the gospel in place. Driven in their affections, not by the next world kingdom living, but driven by anxious attempts to control their circumstances in order to achieve some higher spiritual plane. And they were entirely focused here and now with what was going on in their lives. Paul speaks to them here in this passage of what we could call next world living. Looking at this life in light of what is to come. Let me illustrate it with two families that they're fictional. But the Allen family lives in a nice townhome. They hope to pass this beautiful townhome on to their children and to their children's children. That's the goal. The Jones family lives across the street in an identical townhome. It looks exactly the same. But they have been notified that in one year their home is going to be destroyed. It be knocked down to expand the width of the street. Now that future prospect of those two families living in identical homes on different sides of the street is going to differ widely, isn't it? The Allen family is going to fret a lot more about their house than the Joneses will. And let's take it a step for, further and say that the Jones family has been assured that after that one year is up and their house is destroyed, that they will be given... A, a home purchased by the city that is far superior to the one in which they live. In fact, it's a lake home. Greater worth, greater size than the present one. Now think of how that coming reality is going to change the way they think about redecorating or maintaining or adding on. They're going to think very differently about it in light of what is to come. This is 1 Corinthians 7 illustrated. As born-again, spirit-indwelt Christians, we are the Joneses, not the Allens. We know that this world is passing away. We live in full confidence that Christ will return and that we will inherit eternity with Him. We will inherit the new earth. So Paul's message to the Corinthians is get in line with next world living. This will counsel you through all the questions that you are asking of me and the places where your life is off track. And in one area of life, that's marriage, I'm bringing this principle now to bear. And we see this principle coming to the surface here in these verses more than anywhere else to this point in, from chapter 7 and following. Now the cultural environment in the Corinthian church was radically different from our own such that the passage before us today is thick with difficulties. It doesn't happen often, but when I was walking up here this morning, I really thought about turning around. <laughs> this is one really challenging passage. 
And it's tough for us to grasp the significance of, it to, of this passage to us. But for sake of time, and you know I don't do this often, but there, this has to be unlocked. And the way that you unlock it is going to differ from the way others might unlock it. So I'm going to go up front and say, here's my determinations going into this passage. Take a picture of it if you want, because it might help you as we work our way through make sense of it. I do not have time to lay out here all of the different views and why I've rejected the ones I have and taken the one that I have received. But here it is. Marital engagements were not based on romantic feelings or sexual attraction. And I don't mean that to be an absolute statement, but culturally speaking, that was generally the case. Engagements were contractual matters handed handed down by parents, sometimes years before a girl was mature enough to marry. So they might contract and engage a, woman, a young woman at 10 years of age and just waited until she came to maturity and their marriages generally for a woman was in the age of 13 or 14 years of age, sometimes 12, sometimes of course older. But that background's helpful to us to understand this passage. Secondly, in every instance, the ESV betrothed translates the Greek word virgin, which in this context is shorthand for a young woman engaged to be married. These virgins are addressed in each section of the passage. It says a lot more than meets the eye, but that's the conclusions I've drawn. In fact, I'm following the ESV here. I'm glad that it landed in the right way when it stuck its neck out and translated virgins betrothed because I think that is the case. They are engaged to be married, so to speak. Again, maybe for years before the marriage day. Um, however, I wish it had just read virgins. That would have been better, even though there's a big cultural gap there with that word for us. But that's how they would have understood the word. Thirdly, Paul is more aware of Genesis 2, 18-25 than we are. He is not opposed to marriage, Ephesians 5. His counsel here actually reveals this if read carefully. He addresses a specific season of trial to specific people, so we must weigh his counsel with what he and Scripture teaches elsewhere. And those who have failed to do this have really failed. Throughout history, this passage has been used to impose all types of of controls and straitjacket harm on people. Much suffering has come out by not reading all of what Paul says about marriage. So this isn't the passage on marriage in the Bible. This is one of them. And we want to integrate what he says here with what he says in other places and what the Scriptures teach. Number four, verse 36 addresses young men engaged to be married, not fathers. Some of you may be reading from a translation that at verse 36 begins to address fathers of virgins, fathers of engaged young women. I would reject that view for a number of reasons. It's a common view, traditional view. I don't think that it holds up under scrutiny, so I'm going a different direction there. And then number five, there's only 17 of these, so hang in there. <laughs> no. Members of the Corinthian church were pressuring engaged couples not to marry. Imagine that in our church. That's going on. You really should not marry. 
The motivation driving this council was a twisted sense of spirituality drawn from their pagan culture in deference to asceticism. That is, setting aside normal pleasures so as to get closer to God. Paul agrees with these church members. This is what makes it a little bit of a delicate balance. He agrees with them that celibacy is legitimate, even wise under circumstances. It has an upside, but for very different reasons. He delicately challenges their entire focus in this passage. Okay, those are some conclusions I won't defend, I won't develop, but are going to control the understanding of the passage. So starting out, and this outline is an absolute disaster. I I don't know how you outline this passage. I have no idea. But here we go. Uh, and, And I think that what my outline says is right. I don't think that it's not a shot in the dark, but it's just, I'm just walking through what the passage is saying. So the first point, verses 25 to 28, marriage is good, but certainly not necessary. This is his teaching now on the basis of questions they've asked him. So verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, concerning virgins, young women engaged to be married, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So again, this is shorthand for young women engaged to be married. Paul says, I don't have a direct teaching of Jesus on this matter. I want to be clear on that. It is only, however, by God's mercy that I speak to you with authority, and I do so as an apostle, and I believe that what I say is trustworthy and faithful. You've written me your question about engaged couples. Here's my counsel, verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Remain as he is. If you're connecting to last week, you're going, oh, there it is again. Rest in place. Remain where you are. Be at peace. Don't be anxious about changing your circumstances. Remember verse 20? Each one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. That's kind of the controlling counsel that Paul gives. Verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And so we have it here again in verse 26. In view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Now, Paul's counsel obviously hinges on this present distress. And what's tough for us is we don't have a clue of what that is. People have thought maybe it was a time of famine that led to riots in the city, and there'd be some historical evidence that that could have been the case. Uh, Others have thought it was persecution or something of the like. But it's debatable, I think at least it most naturally reads, as a specific physical crisis in Corinth. And that's as good as we can do. So it might be something like, imagine that you read a letter from an older pastor to a younger pastor giving him counsel, and it's dated April 2020. And the counsel is, in light of the present crisis, I think it wise that the church not meet. And somebody from outside is going, what on earth is the present crisis? And you're reading it and going, COVID, right? You know that. You know the present crisis. You know what he's talking about. You know the, the context. That's how they would have read this. The present crisis was so obvious to them, it doesn't need mention. 
We don't necessarily need to know what that present crisis is, only to bring with our understanding of the text that this is behind Paul's counsel to a significant degree. I think because of that crisis, it's just best to remain in the condition where you are. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. I gave you my interpretive conclusions up front. How is that going to play out here? This isn't talking about a man and a woman married. This is talking here about a man bound to a wife in the sense that he's engaged to a woman. So, keeping in context, are you bound to a wife? That is, have you been engaged to a specific woman? Do not seek to be free. That word free is never used of divorce. And so it speaks of a, of a contractual relationship that's ending. Don't do that. Don't break the, the, the engagement. There's no need to do that. Verse 27, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. If you haven't been engaged to a wife, he's talking to young unmarried men. No need to do anything that way. No need to be anxious. Just rest in place. Rest where you are. But, verse 28, if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. This, I'm, I'm not talking here about right and wrong in the sense of what is moral. Now when we see the exception here, this fits too with what we've been seeing, doesn't it? Here we go again in the, the yellow line here on the, on the slide indicating the next segment. To the married, conjugal, grant conjugal rights. But there's an exception in brief seasons of prayer. To the widowed, stay unmarried. There's an exception. Perhaps you're driven sexually, desire to be married. It's okay. To the married, do not divorce, but it's going to happen. And when it does, to the saved, married to unbelievers, do not divorce. Here's the exception. The unbeliever believing mate leaves you. And so we have here again, to the engaged, remain unmarried. Or don't. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. If the betrothed, that young woman, and here again we have that virgin word, if a virgin woman marries, she's not sinned. So virgin woman, he's now obviously talking about someone other than who he's been addressing, which again supports the fact he's talking to a young man who's, who has an, a, a, a fiancé. Verse 28, continuing from there, Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Here he reveals why he's saying don't seek marriage. Don't change your status. Just rest in place. But if you secure a marriage contract, great. Marriage is God's good gift to humanity, and marriage is not sin. Yet, verse 28, you will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Somehow connected to the present distress there's going to be some real challenges if you go forward and are married. So the, the, this present distress is placing stress upon your marriage. It's probably wise here to just rest in place, wait on the Lord, look at your world and assess what's wise. His counsel actually has less to do with marriage than it does with a believer's processing of life. And so, again, here we just hear that phrase, to rest in place, rest believer. Those members of the church encouraging you to break off your engagements, don't worry about those people. 
Just be at peace. Be at peace right where you are. What are you, young man? 18 years old? You're engaged to a girl who's 13 years old? We have this present crisis going on. Don't push it. Engagements in your situation sometimes last for six, seven years. There's no hurry. If you really want to get married, get married. But this is my counsel. That's all he's saying, I think. Paul seems to anticipate some people, though, scratching their heads in confusion, like us, and say, let let me get to the heart of what I'm saying then. And here's where we really get to the essence and the heart of all that he said in chapter 7 as we come to that next movement in his response. Verse 29 and following, what matters is living in light of the dawning future. So verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? Because the present form of this world is passing away. Now Paul is clearly, if you pick this up, he's clearly speaking figuratively here. Push any of these points literally and you're going to walk into sin. That's not his point. He's talking figuratively here. He starts with the, and and notice that he starts there in verse 29 with the appointed time and ends with the present form of this world is passing away. So there seems to be a connection there between those two. I take them as parallel statements. What Paul is doing here is applying the Gospel to life. He's promoting next world thinking in all of this. So if you're married, hold lightly to that. If you're not married, hold lightly to your status. As you possess things, as you mourn, as you weep, Realize this world's passing away. All of this will be gone. Look forward where you're heading. This world passing away, but there is an appointed time. There is a time in which we meet the Lord. Hold to that. Because of Christ's victory, because we now live in the era of fulfillment, believer, there's nothing more that God must do for our salvation. The work is finished The work is complete. The victory's been won as we sung today. So keep a loose hold on the affairs of this world because you know all is temporal, nothing eternal. Live with keen anticipation of the future hope inheriting eternity with Christ. And if you follow what I'm saying, says Paul, then marriage is not going to be all important. We have to understand what he's saying, rightly. But stay single. Get married. But do not run about this world desperate to change your circumstances as if any change of circumstance will ever matter a whit in eternity. Because it won't. What does it say to those among us here today who are mourning To you who mourn. To you who are single and wish you weren't. You who long to possess a lake home. You who wish you could travel more. 
take heart and look long. As Christians, we don't need a bucket list and should not grow discouraged if our bucket list doesn't get any shorter. It's not a big deal. Where we're going, we're not going to need it. We're not going to miss it. And this world, in comparison to that one, there is going to be no comparison. We're going to be so happy we're there, so fulfilled that we're there with Christ, that all of the things we didn't accomplish in this world are going to mean nothing. Just remember that, Paul says. So singles, don't make too much of marriage. Be at peace. Rest. Any loneliness you feel or loss you sense will be rewarded infinitely in that world to come. Married couples, thank God for your mate. Love her. Honor him. Rejoice in one another's company. But don't obsess over your marriage. There's far more to come. And the purchases we make day by day, buy stuff to survive. Buy stuff to serve God and others. Buy stuff to exercise stewardship. Buy nothing to merely glut it on self-pleasure and hold on to it as if it's going to really change your life. We're going to leave everything here. Live like it. In verses 32 and 34 then, Paul tracks down a second line of explanation to verses 25 to 28. Let me go into a different direction, he says. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now, how do you take anxious? Some people that take both of them as negative. We shouldn't be anxious about serving the Lord. Some say that's positive to be anxious about serving the Lord. It's negative to be anxious about your marriage. I, I think both are positive. I take them that way. To be anxious about the things of the Lord to please the Lord sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? To be anxious about worldly things, and think they're not sinful things, but mundane, to please one's mate is a good thing. Is that not what the Scriptures teach, to love our mate? But as we do so, obviously our attention is divided. The single man has no wife to please, while the married man's focus is then divided, rightly so, between his wife and God. Likewise, the woman, verse 34 he jumps in to balance this out. And the unmarried or betrothed, the virgin woman, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Married and engaged women have a unique calling to please their husbands or husbands-to-be. Just as engaged men or married men have a responsibility to please their mate or their future mate. But what Paul is doing here then is commending a new world orientation and explaining to singles that they must choose. The world we inhabit views singleness as what? Views singleness as freedom to promiscuity, freedom to travel, Freedom to be irresponsible, freedom to waste a bunch of time, freedom to spend time in leisure, whatever. That's the single life. 
May the singles of Eden Baptist Church demonstrate this principle, this orientation towards singleness is given as a gift in order to serve God with undivided devotion, to take responsibilities of mundane things off the plate so that I would serve God with greater devotion. That's the counsel that we find here. In verse 35, as he ties this idea up, he says, I say this then for your own benefit not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. For the life of me, I have no clue how anybody gets celibacy out of this passage. Celibacy is a good thing for some that he commends. But what happens and what has happened in the history of the church is many have narrowed in on verse 35 only on the last phrase. I want to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Translating this to mean, it is best and good and I want everybody to be single. But the whole first half of the verse is just put in darkness and ignored. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. The figure of speech that he uses, not one that we would use as often, but we might add the idea, I am not saying this to put you in a straitjacket. I'm not saying this to put a burden upon you. So engaged couples should choose wisely. Verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Now some interpreters see, as I mentioned, a very significant shift here addressing the unmarried daughter's father. So what this is all about is the, husband, is the father not giving his daughter away in marriage. I don't think, that many reasons why I think that's a misreading of Paul, but as I said earlier, verse 36 addresses, as in verse 26, a man engaged to be married to a young woman. So verse 36, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his virgin, toward his engaged, his fiancée, If his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. So, let's take this guy again. He's 18 years old, and she's 14 years old, let's say. He could wait a while. But if there is this strong desire to be married, what does Paul counsel? Go for it. Don't Remember, don't get married or do. I mean, it's either way, it's fine. But don't don't put yourself in a spot where there's such high sexual tension and difficulty to obey and honor the Lord because you won't get married. Just get married. It's okay. God smiles. Let them marry. But, verse 37, whoever is firmly established in his heart, here's the contrast, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Uh, You get the sense, verse 37, Paul is tripping all over himself to say this needs to be free will. 
This needs to be your choice. So think of what he's, who he's talking to. He's talking to a young man. He has a fiancé who's considerably younger. He's waiting for the right time for marriage. Paul is saying, just be at peace there. But this man is getting pressure from people in the church to break the engagement, to not be married, so as to enter into some higher spiritual status and circumstance. Forget it, says Paul. I'm going to really qualify this carefully. Verse 37, you need to be firmly convinced in your heart that you should not get married. You need to be under no pressure from someone outside. Your sexual desires should be under control. You're making progress there. This isn't something that's overwhelming your spiritual condition. Again, a determination in your heart to keep her at this point as your fiancé, that's a good thing. In the present condition, under the circumstances we're facing, because I want to spare you trouble, I would commend that decision. So, tying it up, he who marries, verse 38, his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So choose wisely. That you notice here that the decision is not between celibacy righteous and marriage sinful. There's nowhere here. The choice is not between celibacy good and marriage, you know, kind of just look the other way. It's not the best, but... The choice in this passage, verse 38, is between marriage good and celibacy potentially under the circumstances better. There is an opportunity to live in light of eternity to serve God with an undivided orientation that is a possibility in some circumstances that an individual who has come to that determination in his or her own heart is doing a good thing. So all is good here. Married or unmarried. Remaining engaged or consummating the marriage with one's fiance. Marriage is a good thing. Verse 39 to 40 now, Paul closes out the topic by returning to where he started. It seems attached kind of glued on or taped on for us, but that's because we've taken several weeks to get through this really challenging chapter. But that said, uh, it actually connects now, verses 39, to where we all started with this discussion. 7-1, now concerning matters about which you wrote, here's their thinking, it's good for a man not to be, have sexual relations with a woman. That is, celibacy is a high good thing. Paul immediately disagrees with their position. Not with the belief that celibacy is a good position, but why they got there. And so he moves in, for instance, verse 10, to the married I give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband and the like. So back now to verse 39, as he brings this to a close, 
Widows are free to remarry in the Lord. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. That's the general rule. She's not to divorce her husband. But here we see the last exception. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So back to our chart. Now the last line of this situation. A wife bound to her husband for life. What's the exception to the rule? She may marry if he dies. And he's given counsel already on that point. Verse 40 then, Yet in my judgment she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. He's providing counsel as a man indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There are exceptions to what he has said. There's some flexibility to his counsel. But he rests his case confident that he's given good counsel that pleases the Lord in that situation. So this passage, as we bring chapter 7 to close today, let me bear with me just a bit longer here, but this passage is all about marriage, and yet its reach covers all of life, doesn't it? We saw that specifically in verse 29 as he speaks about how to look at life. He's not talking about singles that are engaged to one another here. He breaks out of that narrow focus to say from now on that those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with this world as though they had no dealings with it. The present form of this world is passing away. There's where we begin to see what's at the very heart and drives His instruction here. And that is the future that Christ has purchased for His people. In the big scheme of things, we are called to adopt next world living. To live every day in light of the reality that our world is passing away and Christ has made us heirs of eternity with Him. The redemption we have in Christ. The inheritance that awaits us in His presence. That's what should calibrate the way we look at everything. The way we hold on to everything. Loosely. Knowing we're passing through. Even marriage is not all that important in light of eternity. We even learn in Scripture that there will be no marriage in eternity. doesn't make sense to us. I don't want to think about it. I don't know how to work that out. I really need Beth, I think. <laughs> She'll tell you, yeah, he does more than you know. <laughs> but it, all that we so enjoy here is going to be enjoyed at a level so much greater and further and more significant. This will all pale in comparison. That's your future, Christian. Do you live like it? Does it look like you're living for eternity? Does it look like I am? In light of eternity, everything in this world pales in comparison. And for you who do not know Christ as Savior, unless something changes, unless you turn to trust His death and resurrection, then you're going to enter into that eternity. And the saddest of sad things will be that the joys that are there, you'll have no taste. You'll not want them. You'll not get them. You'll be removed from them. In fact, everything that you're striving for here will find its fulfillment there, but you'll have no taste for it. 
and the gates will be barred and you'll be separated from Christ who is the source of all joy and good for eternity. That's the warning of Jesus. That's His open arm call to you to come to trust His saving grace and to enter into the joy of the Lord. Your soul, as we studied here in our adult class this morning, your soul will be restless until you find rest in Him. And that's the whole point of where what the Corinthians were drawing from their culture was people flitting about so anxious to change their circumstances. The circumstance that needs to change in your heart as one who has not trusted Christ as Savior is to trust Him. Is to lay down your sin and turn from it and receive His salvation. That's when your heart can be at rest. And never any other way will it find rest in this world or the next. So if you reject that rest in this life, you're rejecting it for eternity. You don't want to do that. And we pray by the grace of God that He'd open your eyes to the wonders of the life that He's purchased for His people. And most pointedly for His people, to think of those who are single in light of this passage Do you notice how Paul turns our world's obsession with sexual sexual identity on its head? Our identity is in Christ, and marriage does not affect that positively or negatively. It doesn't change one whit that you were made in the image of God. Our identity is in Christ. And God reveals here that your singleness then is not an inferior state. It's not an inferior condition. It's not an inferior circumstance. You have not missed out on the good life. Jesus was single. And He secured eternal life for His people. Single, married, widowed, divorced, engaged. Let all of that take on the dullness that it deserves. In Christ is your standing. And entering into glory as a celibate is no loss, it's gain. Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, All reject Paul's teaching on singleness here. Assigning elevated status to married people. May there be no elevated status in this church to those who are married. We've received a blessing. God is gracious to those of us who need the help. There's no higher status. We're one in Christ. And singles... You are widowed. You are like, I think, the Levites in Israel. Everybody got land. Everybody had a big section of the promised land, but not the Levites. Their task was to be uniquely devoted to the service of Christ. And seeing that unique calling and that unique status was a source of joy, not of moaning. And so it is with singles in our church. There is a unique calling there that frees you to serve the Lord in a unique way. Know that one day this will be a source of great joy.
Shifting gears, this passage is one of several in the New Testament then that commends single elders in the assembly. We've had two in the past, and both Scripture and history, I think, confirm the appropriateness of that calling on the church's part. A single is not of inferior status, who hasn't proven himself with a family. We should be able to discern in his life that he will be a good father and a good husband. And I think we're two for two in that area without any question. But singles are not to be given inferior status because they're not married. Beyond elders, single adult widows, are you using your singleness then to serve the Lord with a devotion that is enabled by your singleness? And if you hear these words and all they do, well, part of what they do is just generate confusion and questions you wonder about your status you wonder about where you should go you wonder about whether you should pursue marriage or not that's what the church is here for seek counsel seek direction allow others to speak into your life seek counsel in these ways we do this together that's what paul's doing here got some in the church pressuring others in the church in a wrong way i'm going to come in here and let you know what i'm thinking that's based on how to live out the gospel in that kind of situation well we're not living in first corinthians 7 on a hundred levels but as you grapple with these issues there's people here in this church who know how to apply the gospel to life talk to them Talk to them. Seek out that counsel if you're confused or wanting that. But for all of us, I had a lot of different titles to this sermon today. And I came in the end to say I don't think that it's mainly about singles, about engaged couples. But I think that it's mainly about next world living. Allowing what Christ has accomplished and that gospel message to transform the way we look at everything in this world. Are you there? Are you progressing? Are we growing as a church in depth and in fidelity as we apply the gospel to life? That's the call, I think, that remains for us here. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your counsel, for your goodness to us. We acknowledge we are living a a long, long ways from 1 Corinthians 7. But will you teach us, Lord, how to honor marriage? How to rightly steward marriage? I pray that you would help us as a church to remain married and not to use the avenue of divorce easily or unthoughtfully or selfishly. Lord, I pray that you'd give wisdom to us to understand divorce, remarriage but the significance of remaining married. And for those that have failed and have done what they know is wrong, Lord, bring grace, bring forgiveness, bring stability of heart to know that in Christ there is forgiveness of all of our sins. That there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. May they not look to the past and bemoan what they've done, but look to the future and know that one day we will be remade may that be our longing and father for our singles come alongside for our widows come alongside and strengthen and encourage and grant us as a church wisdom to know how to counsel one another and how to live 
with fidelity in this world. Fidelity to you above all else. We ask this praying again for those friends among us who do not yet trust Christ as Lord and Savior. Bring them to the light of that gospel, we pray, even today. Through Jesus we pray it. Amen.